Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. This is Henry Lopez, and welcome to this episode of The How of Business. My guest today is Norman Crowley. Norman, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Looking forward to this conversation. You know, how do, how do we come up with great business ideas? And as I've always been challenged with, is the idea the easy part or is execution the harder part? And how do you determine if you have a good idea for a small business? I'm fortunate to have and be joined today by an inspirational entrepreneur. Norman started his first business at age 16 and went on to establish and sell various highly successful international businesses. He's still in business today. And on this episode, I'm going to explore the highlights because we just we'd spent hours and hours exploring every detail of his incredible journey, but his, his highlights of his fascinating entrepreneurial career. And then I'm going to ask him to share his thoughts and experiences on business ideas. To receive more information about the Howa business, including the show notes page, for this episode and to schedule a free coaching consultation with me, please text biz, B-I-Z to 772-837-5700 or visit thehowabusiness.com. So Norman Crowley is an entrepreneur and the founder of Crowley Carbon. Crowley Carbon is an engineering services company that specializes in helping manufacturing companies and commercial buildings achieve net zero carbon. He's also the founder and CEO of Cool Planet Group. Cool Planet Group uncovers the business opportunities in tackling climate change. Norman is an inspirational international entrepreneur who founded multiple successful businesses, including the Cloud, Europe's largest Wi-Fi operator, Inspired Gaming Group, the world's largest company in the server-based gaming domain, Trinity Commerce, one of the first e-commerce services company in the world, and most recently, as I mentioned, Crowley Carbon and um, Cool Planet Group. Norman is among one of Ireland's top entrepreneurs and was nominated in 2011, uh, 2011 Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. More impressively, I think he's recognized by his clients and colleagues as a consummate professional with a high degree of personal integrity, and he's known for a contagious passion for excellence a talent for resourceful business solutions, and a capacity for motivational leadership. And so we're fortunate to have him here today. Norman lives in Dublin, Ireland. Norman Crowley, welcome to the show. Good to be here. When you listen to that description, you start to think it's somebody else, actually. <laughs> <laughs> You've done so much. I usually don't have that long of a bio, but I, I tried to consolidate it best I could and still get in everything that you've done. And that's what I'd like to dive into. So Thank you for indulging me on this. I know you've told this story a million times, but uh, if I got it right early on, your first business venture and exposure to business, because you grew up in a, in a farm community on a farm, was your dad taught you how to weld, correct? Yeah. So I grew up in, in West Cork in Ireland um, in the 1970s, and um, it was just a very poor place, you know, um, and there was always food on the table, but very little else. And so um, I guess, you know, and then we used to watch TV from the mm -hmm. US, right? And we would watch soap operas like Dallas, where they lived in these big mansions mm -hmm. and drove fancy cars. And it was like our life was just the entire opposite to this. So I guess at a young age, I kind of developed a burning desire to, to make money um, and to succeed. Um, and then 
when my dad taught me to weld at 12, that was kind of like alchemy, you know, because I, I seemed to have a skill, a talent for it. And then there was a lot of local farmers needed stuff repaired. Um, and it kind of grew from there. And by the time I was 16, I had 12 people working for me. Um, and by the time I was 20, I'd sold my first company. Um, wow. So, yeah. What do you think that at that early of an age drove this desire to want to make money? What What did you, besides what you saw, you know, except for Jr. getting shot, you didn't want that. But <laughs> what did you feel? Probably money you in the shower. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what 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 did What What was it going to do for you? I mean, you weren't um, living in abject freedom. poverty because uh, no, I mean, no, so no, no, um, freedom. Really, I guess there were a couple of things happening at the same time. One was Ireland's a very religious country back then. Um, now it's probably one of the most liberal countries in the world, which That's is brilliant. Um, but back then it was very religious. The church ruled everything. It was very restricted. Um, and life was very restricted. We lived out the country. You very rarely went to town. And so money equaled freedom to do whatever you wanted to do. Um, and, and there's another part of it that very few people talk about the entrepreneurial journey too. Um, I find that there are two types of entrepreneurs. There's a type of entrepreneur who builds a business, sells it and never works again. And then there's the majority who build a business, sell it, and then go straight back in. And, and people who do that, obviously fantastic, but, um, I think there's something in their psyche that's not entirely healthy. And I would put myself in that bracket, <laughs> right. um, which is that you're trying to prove somebody at a young age told you that you'd never amount to anything and you've got a chip on your shoulder and you, you know, you, you've got to keep at it to prove whoever that was wrong consistently. And it doesn't matter if that person is dead and gone you've still got that burning desire. And I don't think that's an entirely healthy process, you know? So a couple of questions there for you. Was that just collectively everything that you described, the, the state of the country at that point, the church, mm -hmm. all of that, was it a collective kind of thing that kept you from being able to, to do what you wanted to do in life or told you that you weren't going to amount to anything or like for me, yeah. it was a tough relationship with my dad. So I don't know if there's similarities yeah. there. Similarities. I mean, parents always, you know, that I think parents struggle, certainly back then parents struggled to encourage. And then the community as well. We were even talking here at work this morning about um, when you're trying to achieve something extraordinary, the amount of people who smirk at you um, and just say, that's not gonna happen. It's like 80, 90% of everybody um, does that, you know. Um, we had a potential investor in here today and they were just saying, hey, that's way too ambitious what you're trying to do. And we're there going, our office is in a castle, we're in 23 countries. You know, I think the ambition, I think you might've noticed that when you walked in the door that we're ambitious, you know. Right. And, and, and it was said with a kind of smirk, in other words, kind of, I know better, you're not going to do that. And a phrase that we love is Gandhi said about change. He said, first they mock you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Mm -hmm. And that's very true of the entrepreneurial journey. First they mock you, um, you know, and then, um, and then it goes from there. And so it's the thing that makes it pretty tough, you know. Um, 
I have found it, at least I think sometimes people will do that because in part they're talking to themselves. They're kind of, they're afraid that you might do what they don't have the courage to do. Yeah, I think that's a bit of it because the thing we debate a lot, the same thing is true of, you know, uh, generally hating the rich, right? Um, And I can understand a lot of the motivations behind that. But if somebody is self-made, and they've fought the battles and they've won, right? Um, and then you're looking at that person, then there are two conclusions you can draw from that. Either they they outworked you or outfoxed you or they stole it, right? And so the easier thing to do is to cast aspersions on that person and say they stole it, they inherited it from their dad. You know, if it's a woman, you know, she wore a short skirt, she slept her way up like this kind of horrible stuff that people say, right? Um, Rather than just, because if you had to admit, wow, like they just outworked me um, or whatever it might be, then you have to admit that they did that. And the implication of that is you didn't. And therefore you've ended up where you've ended up. And easier thing to do is to gang up with your mates and point and laugh. It's It's a human thing. Makes sense. That well said there. I want to go back to though the that feel that that drove you to that chip on your shoulder. I think you mentioned you have a you have children your yourself now yeah. who are grown, right? Mm-hmm. So you know they probably didn't grow up with that same uh, kind of attitude put on them or limiting beliefs put on them. And so I've always wondered. So where where do they get their fuel? Because that's the fuel we used to go do things. How do you yeah. think uh, an entrepreneur finds that fuel if they don't have that background, if they don't have that baggage? Um, I think fuel get comes from all over the place. Like in my, I have two girls, they're 20 and 22, and they work their ass off, you know. Um, but different to me, I think they know how to party um, and, and they know how to have a good time. Um, not saying I don't, but not as much as they do. And, um, and then... I think the work ethic that they have, they got from their parents. They And it's not, you know, there's an interesting parenting lesson. We never said to them, you can't have that toy. You know, you know that thing I see with people who are middle class or upper class who have the means is they kind of go, well, I'm going to teach them the value of money young, right? I just think that's horseshit. Like we never did that. We never told them they couldn't have anything. Like all we ever asked was that they respected people um, when they were younger and then everything else they could have. Um, and they've learned the value of money themselves and they worked their ass off. So I don't think that's something, um, but I wouldn't want them to have the same chip on their shoulder as I do um, because I, again, I don't think it's kind of positive. Well, it's never satisfied, right? It's a void that we can Absolutely. never quite fill. Yeah. Absolutely. And I know a guy, very close friend, actually, who sold his business uh, about 15 years ago. He sold his business for two billion bucks um, and he went off straight away and built another. I don't know what it's worth today, seven or eight billion bucks. Um, and he cannot scratch that itch, you know, and, and similarly with me. And it's not like you're unhappy. Like I'm very happy and find joy in, in pretty much everything. Um, but that itch, it's very hard on the family because um, like my wife, you know, she would like to sail off into the sunset now. And <laughs> yet she's married to this guy who wants to conquer the world. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So you did not go to university. 
What was your advice to your daughters as they were getting to that age? Go to university, have a great time. (laughs) Try to pass the exams if you can. Yep. (laughs) The value you felt they would get was what? Um, Networking, a continuation of the party. You know, at that point, what you don't want at that point, you know, 16, 17, when they're finished uh, high school and they're going in to college is, say, 17, is um, I just didn't want them to work. I wanted them to go meet new people, have fun. Yes, learn a bit, but really get a network and uh, of people that you know, get experience of life, that kind of thing. And, and I, I'm quite close to colleges and we work with universities on R&D and stuff. And look, you know, people don't really learn that much in college and, and that shouldn't be the, um, you know, and a lot of what they learn isn't that useful. It's really good for engineering and stuff like that because you can do a calculation about the specific heat capacity of water, right? Um, mm-hmm. But not so good. A lot of it is just stuff you can read on the internet in 30 seconds, you know, yeah. but the bit of it that's fantastic is just that life experience of college and freedom. Like my daughter is in Northeastern at the moment and she's just living, you know, when she grew up in Ireland, she watched those TV shows about kids and college and all that. And now she's going to frat parties and doing all that. And, and I love that she can experience that. You know? Yeah. That was the same thing I wanted for my daughter. She graduated last year. So she's a little bit older than yours. She's 20. 23. <laughs> if yeah. she listens to this, she's not going to be happy with me that I had to pause <laughs> on her age. But yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. similarly, you know, I, I think also, and I think you touched on it, I think they do still hopefully learn how to learn a little bit. So there's a little bit yeah. of discipline there that comes with it. But, but yeah, I agree as well. But going back to the networking thing, it seems to me like that's one of the hardest things that for me has been to impart and communicate to younger people how important that is. How, how do you share that, the importance of networking? And, and did you get that early on? Did you understand how important it was, who you knew, and how that would could translate into opportunities? Um, I did. I, I mean, I don't think it was called networking. And I kind of don't like the word networking either, because when people aren't used to it, what they do is they go to a networking event, um, and they think networking is talking to as many people as they possibly can. Uh, in an hour right and that just makes you an insincere asshole right um like what we tend to do is um if i met something like that i will i would rather a deep conversation with one person for an hour you know and um and somebody who shares our values or whatever and and i think that's it i think the thing i learned later in life is that um, it's very important to have a mission um, and that the bigger that mission, the better. And that helps a lot with networking because people align with that mission and want to contact you. For instance, Richard Branson is a friend of mine and I can, I, I wouldn't call Richard for a tennis game. Two reasons. I'm not that good at tennis, but also <laughs> it's kind of, it would be trivial, but I can easily call Richard about something about climate change. If I want him to attend an event or say something, um, then he will do that absolutely no problem. And I have no problem asking him because it's far the wider mission. Um, and I think a lot. it's very easy to build a network if you have a clear mission um, and you communicate that to the world. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Great, great advice there. All right, let's start moving forward. You, you sold the welding business at age 20. And that's when you segued into technology. You always had uh, 
a passion for that, had kind of applied some technology to the welding. And that's yeah. what brought you to Trinity Commerce, right? Yeah. So we, I guess, you know, again, a lot of it is kind of inspiration from the wider world of television. But when I was a young kid, all the cool kids seemed to be computer guys because at the time software was a new thing and computers were cool. And you had all these great movies about it. Um, and so I used to program when I was like 12 again. Um, and so I always wanted to do that. And so I just, when I sold the welding business, I just set up a technology company, didn't know anything about anything. Um, and first of all, we started selling computers to small businesses. And then we started selling computers and software to small businesses. And then in 1995, we saw the internet for the first time. And it was just one of those moments um, <laughs> where, you know, we've had a similar one recently with electric vehicles a couple of years ago, where when you just experience it, you just know that you have to be involved in that. And so at the time, that was the internet. And then we were one of the first e-commerce companies. Um, and so by 1999, we had 170 people. We were operating in the US uh, and in Europe. Um, and we were doing work for everybody from Time Warner, AOL, through to kind of William Hill um, in the UK. And we were doing proper transactions on the internet when nobody else was doing transactions. Um, and then in 1999, two telecoms companies were floating. They both needed an e-commerce play and the bidding war kind of erupted between the two of them for our business. And so... In 99, we sold out for all cash, no iron out deal, which is incredible if you can get away with it. Yeah. And that, that was the deal that was almost a much bigger deal, was it not? No, that, that happened about 10 years oh, later. Oh, that was the gaming. Uh, oh, that was the gaming. Yeah, this one was ah, kind okay. of just, but I retired. On the back of this one, I retired. This is when you retired and then that lasted a couple of weeks, I think it was. Yeah. Like three, three months it lasted, right? Yeah, that's right. In fact, I think the trouble started after three weeks, but it did officially last three months. And then, because <laughs> uh, I guess after about three weeks, I started looking for the next thing. Um, and then William Hill was a client of ours uh, in the internet company. And they, you know, I was meeting somebody from William Hill in London that I knew. And I was in one of the shops and I just saw this opportunity around gaming machines. I couldn't understand these gaming machines were just real based unconnected pieces of furniture really and, the things uh, that we found in, in traditional arcades you're talking about like a pac-man right. machine um no even worse than that so what they had in the uk was these things called real based slots it's it's like what vegas oh, used to have okay. before video machines um and um and this was 2001 right um hmm. and so we started talking to the guy in William Hill and I just said, why don't you have a broadband connected machine that you can download games to? And he said, oh, people don't play those. And I was like, but people play them all the time in Vegas. So it doesn't make any sense to me. And he was like, yeah, but here's different. And, and we were just like, here isn't different. It's just nobody's <laughs> built a proper machine. And so the average income at the time from a machine was about 200 bucks a week. Um, and our first machine, which was a connected digital machine, took about 50 bucks a week. Um, and then over 18 months, we just kept iterating. Um, and the third version took 700 bucks a week. Um, and that would have been late 2001. Wow. Um, okay. So, so then, gaming, gaming, yeah. we're talking about gambling. I, I understand gambling. first. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. it's not like you had a passion for gambling. You saw an opportunity yeah. here to marry, you know, what was an old fashioned way to do it with technology. And that's what mm -hmm. sparked this idea. Yeah. Yeah. And every business we have, 
uh, disrupts another business, disrupts a traditional business, ideally permanently. And, and that was true, um, particularly true of Inspired Gaming. It, it completely disrupted the entire global gaming industry. And, um, and it became um, a monster business. From 2001 to 2006, went from zero revenue to 300 million in revenue. Um, it would be termed a unicorn today. Um, and then we floated it on the stock exchange in 2006. Um, and then in 2007, late 2007, an Icelandic hedge fund offered to buy the business for a billion bucks um, off the market. So we agreed that and, and the kind of famous thing that happened there, we were two hours away from signing on the dotted line when the whole global financial crisis really bit and the deal just collapsed and wow. and we were literally two hours away from a billion bucks you were already a wealthy person at that point though and then you did end up selling it for half a billion dollars later yeah right? yeah we did we did okay yeah <laughs> so so you know obviously this story you tell it and i everywhere i saw you did interview it gets featured because it catches people's attention but other than all the, I think that probably what hurt the most, I suspect, is all the work and effort uh, that went into it for it to then fall apart more than the billion dollars, or am I missing something there? Um, yeah, I think, no, I think that you've hit the nail on the head. The other one is ego. Um, so business people uh, who are successful, whatever that means, um, we have egos, we have very fragile egos, um, and we suffer from imposter syndrome. And so when you fail to do a deal that's very public, then it's a big slap in the face of you're not good enough. You weren't good enough to do that deal. Yeah. yeah. And so that took you, took you way back to childhood. Me. And it was like, absolutely. All of that got resurfaced. Yeah. 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 And everything, every smart remark anybody ever said to you comes flooding back, you know. Um, and, and your health wasn't the best at the time either. Well, I wasn't exactly Mr. Healthy, right? So I was very, very heavy like 270, 80 pounds. Um, and my lifestyle at the time was get up on a Monday morning in Dublin, leave my kids and my wife, fly to London, work in London all week. And then every third week, fly to Hong Kong, jump on a private jet, do eight countries around Hong Kong, fly home. And then every 12th week, uh, fly to Sydney um, and do the same. And and I was just eating everything that was put in front of me, wasn't exercising, wasn't meditating, wasn't doing anything. And then we got through the kind of not selling the business. But then around May, the year after 2008, I just woke up one day, couldn't feel my hand. Mm. Um, and by lunchtime, I couldn't feel my arm. Um, and people went to specialists. They thought it was either very serious or semi-serious. Some people thought it was ALS. Other people thought it was modern neuron disease. Um, and it turned out just to be like the worst dose of stress that anybody had ever seen. Wow. And so I started to rebuild, then kind of lost an awful lot of weight, exercised, like learned the ropes basically. And today, you know, we would have, uh, certainly among our executives, we would have this kind of reasonably strict rule base, which is, you know, um, diet, exercise, not so much policing people's diet, but healthy living, exercise, 
meditation or some kind of spiritual practice and that kind of stuff is encouraged because that's if you're going to you know the stuff we do in business is kind of like training for the olympics right and mm -hmm. if you're going to train for the olympics no point in nipping into mcdonald's every day right it's right. got to be you got to stick to the rules and that transformed my life really um and um and now today they a lot of the guidelines that we would give or if somebody is in crisis uh, some kind of mental health crisis then we would basically go through the checklist with them are you exercising for more than 30 minutes every day where your heart rate goes over 100 right are you do you have some kind of spiritual practice that meditation or some prayer if you're religious um that is longer than 20 minutes every day um and then are you eating a lot of greens and avoiding crap um in general um and we find that when somebody is having a mental health crisis um they very rarely get two out of three of those never mind three out of three i see and now that so now this has become cultural within your organizations if I'm very much so yeah very much so okay yeah. so did this did, did getting healthy was it in part what uh, created this focus on climate and environment or was that there prior how, how did you come now um, to this focus yeah well when we were along the way of course it's never good enough to set up one business we always have to set up two so while we were building while we were going from zero to 300 million in revenue between 01 and 06 we didn't feel like we had enough on so we um we i bumped into a guy called george polk who's, who's quite legendary now um and george um and i concocted this idea to set up europe's largest wi-fi operator um, called the cloud um, and we became very good friends um, and he um, he was obsessed with climate change and still is and now he's become quite famous in the world of climate um, and he was always on about climate change he'd invite us over to his house and we'd do dinners about climate and so um, that was where the bug got me and when we sold so we sold the business for half a billion bucks in 2008 and then because I have this disease where I have to start another company, um, <laughs> we just said, there's no point in setting up another business that buys something for a buck and sells it for two. It, we need something that's going to have an impact on the world. Um, and so climate change was the obvious. Um, and that was the beginnings of Cool Planet Group, which has now, you know, become quite successful. Fascinating. So, you know, that I've been touching on it, but I want to start deeper diving here on how you come up with ideas and make decisions about pursuing an idea. And so far, what I've heard is a lot of it is what, what inspires you and, and television, American television in particular, had that early inspiration. But then, you know, we go back to the gaming business, you saw an opportunity there to apply technology. Uh, it had to be something you, you, you seem to look for things that are disruptive. Now, of course, it's this focus of the Im having an impact on the world. Yeah, so it seems like, uh, and I've had a similar but a much smaller scale situation for myself, where I, I consider myself an opportunistic entrepreneur. It, yeah. and would you say that that's the same been a same approach for you as far as business ideas? Yeah, um, I think as we get older, we're less opportunistic and more tactical. But I'll give you an example of something that how it all comes together uh, and ends up as a monster. Um, so we, in 2019, as I was 
approaching 50. Um, I always wanted to do something around cars. I've always loved cars. I had a car collection and I never drove the car collection because <laughs> of climate change. And I just didn't like the fact of driving a big Corvette stingray down the road and making a whole lot of noise. Um, and, and I got this idea of why don't I convert this car to electric, right? Because it has all the beauty of, of a, a piece of art, but actually it's just deeply unreliable and lousy for the planet. And so we built a business um, called Ava um, that started doing that. And people kind of slagged us off about it because they were saying, well, this is never going to become a big business because it's just one art project after another. Um, in fact, you know, that thing we were talking about, about first they laugh at you, then they mock you. Like right. we did some market research on that at the time. And like 95% of people interviewed said they would never drive an electric classic. And now our electric classics business is sold out until 2023. Right, um, let, me, let me interrupt you there. So why, despite that feedback, did you decide to move forward with that idea? Because market research largely doesn't work, you know, like if I, you know, the famous phrase is Henry Ford, right? Um, he said, if I asked people what they wanted, that have said a faster horse. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you ask somebody, the famous one that happened in our business is uh, when we had the gaming business, we owned 14,000 jukeboxes. So we came up with the idea that we would create a jukebox that had every song ever recorded. And we called it the music. Hmm. And um, it, when we did the market research, every pub landlord said they would never put one of these in. And then uh, we promptly sold six and a half thousand of them in the first two years. You know, so, and it was a huge product, you know. Um, and so likewise with the iPhone, right? You say, I was saying this to somebody recently about the iPhone, right? Um, look, you can have this thing. If you described it to somebody without giving them one, and you said, like, you can have this thing, but it's going to cost you 1300 bucks. People are like, I'm not paying 1300 bucks for that. But now we can't live without it. Right? Mm -hmm. This is Henry Lopez pausing this episode for a moment to tell you about my trusted service partner for business franchises, Giuseppe Grammatico, the Franchise Guide. Giuseppe is a franchise consultant who helps his clients find financial and time freedom through small business franchise ownership. If you're listening to this podcast, then you are obviously interested in starting your own business, but perhaps you're not interested in starting a business from scratch. If you instead think you want to leverage a more proven business model, then I suggest you may want to consider a franchise business. With the right franchise, someone else has developed and perfected the business model, and you're able to leverage that expertise and experience by investing in owning and operating a franchise location of your own. But to find the right franchise that's a fit for you is not always an easy process. You need help. And I recommend Giuseppe Grammatico, the franchise guide, to help you consider franchising and find the right one for you. And remember, as a franchise consultant, Giuseppe's fees are paid by the franchise company you choose and not by you. I trust and personally recommend Giuseppe, and he is currently helping me as I search for a new franchise business to launch. Visit thehowabusiness.com for more information and the link to schedule a free franchise consultation with Giuseppe. And when you connect with Giuseppe, just let him know you heard about him on the How A Business podcast. All right, so that leads me to this question, a bunch of questions, but is it is it the idea or is it the execution or is it both? It's the execution. 
the idea is kind of like, so, and this will give you the example of it's not the idea. So then we had an electric art business, right? C converting beautiful cars um, and selling them to richer people. Um, and, but it's not a big business and it's not really solving climate change. You could argue it's inspiring people to solve climate change. But then um, we get a bit of a reputation for doing it. And then a mining company approaches us and they say, hey, will you convert one of our light vehicles that drives around the mine to electric? Mm. And we were like, sure, but why do you want to do that? And they were saying, well, by 2025, we need to convert 13,000 of these um, to electric, right? Um, and then, so we do one, and then we discover that they need charging infrastructure and they need renewable energy and they need safety and they need all the other stuff we do. And another billion dollar opportunity was born now we didn't come up with that idea like somebody approached us and just asked us to do it um and so but then once back to what you were saying about opportunistic once somebody um offers you that opportunity then the opportunistic side comes in because you can link it to something else you're mm -hmm. doing or whatever and make it into something and, that, and that's you said that, that's when you become more tactical then is that what you meant by that yeah, and, and execution then back to that, right? Execution is all about team and team is the hardest thing. Okay. Because, you know, you set up a business, it's a bit of a lonely pursuit. So it's always nice to do it with a partner. So then you've got a business partner, then the business partner turns out to be a bit of an asshole. <laughs> then you've spent years arguing with that person and, and then you're building a team and you think the team is going to be amazing, but then the team turns out to be, not amazing and really execution is about having a team of ninjas and in our group whether it's our personal family office businesses or our cool planet group the executives are spectacular like every single one of them not just the executives but the managers that report to those executives um, and that's because they've been built up over 20 years um, and you know we've built that team and honed it and that's where the execution comes in so i can think of an idea i can hand it to somebody and they will execute it to excellence you know wonderful i, I gotta think then there's been ideas that you did not follow through on right is there is yeah. there anything that stands out as to a common denominator there as to why you don't pursue an idea um yeah i uh, it's a good question. Um, a lot. It could be any one of many reasons. Um, now, we like you know. I was saying to you that we've gone from being opportunistic to being more tactical. So now, if it doesn't have recurring income, then we wouldn't touch it. Okay. If it doesn't impact a billion people in the world, we won't touch it. Um, so there are now we're much more kind of tactical about what it is we would touch and what we wouldn't before. It was much more, oh, well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Let's do that. You know. um, For an aspiring entrepreneur, you know, that, that applies to you now, obviously, as, as because of where you're at in your progression. For an aspiring entrepreneur looking to start that first venture, then uh, what, what would you offer there as advice as to determining, is this a good idea or not a good idea? Well, even for somebody starting with a corner shop, right, or a cafe, if you're gonna get up in the morning, as Elon Musk says, building a business is like chewing glass while constantly looking <laughs> over the abyss, right? <laughs> and it is, right? And if you like look at 
me and my kind of castle, like we were talking about earlier. Like we had the, I had the worst day in business yesterday that I've had in three or four years. Wow. Um, and, and deeply gut-wrenchingly horrible. Um, and, um, and, you know, so this never goes away. So people look at what I've done and they say, well, it's easier for him. Nothing's easy, right? Because we're trying to do bigger stuff now and bigger stuff's hard, right? And we're trying to do it on multiple fronts, like 23 different businesses. Um, and that's difficult, you know, and it's stressful and you worry about the teams and you worry about their health and all of that kind of thing. And so, but I would say to the person in the corner shop, exactly what I said, are you going, when you're starting this are, because you're going to have to chew glass and look over the abyss is, is this idea you're doing, could it impact a billion people, right? How big are you aiming? And then if you're not aiming big enough, why aren't you aiming big enough? Because if you're going to have to go through this, then why not aim big? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Uh, how much does luck play into it? Play um, into being successful in business in a particular venture? Yeah. I think the cliche is very true of the harder you work, the luckier you get. Yeah. Um, and I think luck I'm not religious, but I do think things like meditation where you where like the science of meditation now that they've learned is that I think it's your frontal lobe increases in size when you meditate. So you literally become more focused, mm -hmm. you become smarter, you become slightly more connected with people and therefore luck occurs much easier because you're able to you know that movie Limitless with Bradley Cooper? Mm -hmm. You become like a slightly shit version of that where you you can join the dots much easier, you know, and connect them much easier and implement them with more passion. So I think that's where a lot of the luck comes from, you know. And But then you can get unlucky too, and then it's how you react uh, in that situation. Yeah. I mean, some of it is timing, like what happened to you when you were trying to sell the business, right? So it's a matter of how you respond to that, but yeah, I agree. And so what I'm hearing also that you have to be healthy physically and mentally work hard. And then as I like to say, you put it yourself in the way of luck. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have a thing, it's kind of, you know, people ask for advice all the time, but advice is tricky because if it's an early stage company, it's one set of advice. If you're selling the business, it's another, or if you're floating, it's another. So it's very hard to have advice that one size fits all. But the story, and if people have heard it, I apologize, is when I was 21, I learned how to walk on hot coals. Um, and it, the idea of walking on hot coals is to overcome fear. And so we like when I learned, I became obsessed with walking on hot coals and I learned to teach it. And the rules of success in life and in business are exactly the same as the rules of walking on hot coals. Um, and, and so will I, will I tell you that story? Yes, please do. <laughs> so, so there are three very simple rules, right? The first one is, well, how, do, how walking on hot coals work is they take about 30 ton of timber they light a match to it. And then when it's burnt down, they rake it into about 30 or 40 feet of, of pretty hot stuff. I think it's, I don't know, they've measured it. And it's like, I can't remember what it is in Fahrenheit, but it's about a thousand degrees Celsius. That's so pretty hot. Mm -hmm. And then they, um, the rule number one is before you walk, fill your mind with happy thoughts, right? 
And so how that works in real life is the company you keep, right? Are you around negative people all the time? Um, are you tuning into the news all the time as opposed to listening to podcasts about, you know, how to be successful? Um, so filling your mind with happy thoughts. And our we have a bubble in our house. In our house, there is no news stations. You know, we, we get the news by osmosis, but we don't listen to it or tune into it. We tend to avoid people who are negative, like everyone is negative every now and then, but we tend to avoid people who are consistently negative. Um, and we hang around with people who are optimistic about life and where life is going. And um, that's the first one. The next one then is you gotta be clear about the destination. There's no point walking halfway across the bed of hot coals, pausing for a minute, turning around because you'll just burn. Um, and in life, you know, people always talk about goals, but the thing they don't talk about as much is communicating those goals. So if you say, if you're opening a corner shop and you say, I'm gonna open a corner shop, but I'm gonna find a way that this is gonna positively impact a billion people, everybody, not everybody, but 90% of people are gonna laugh at you, right? But if yes. you communicate that publicly and you have the courage to communicate it publicly, then people, the other 10% become your allies and your partners and they encourage you. But if you don't communicate it, if you just write down a goal and you don't communicate, then nothing happens. Right? Communication is the activation of it. But communication takes courage because people will mock you and laugh at you. Right? And you have to get through that. Right? So, so that's number two. And then number three is keep walking. Right? So when you're walking on hot coals, you keep walking right? because that life is tough right and business is tough um and you just have to keep getting through it and you know people look at me and they kind of go well you have it easier no we don't have it easier because every day we work harder than we did the day before um but if you keep walking you will win you know? yeah you could argue that for you that those coals are even hotter or maybe it's even longer however you want to stretch the analogy yeah uh, well they're certainly more it's still hard yeah, yeah more public <laughs> exactly yeah, wonderful. Thank you for sharing that story. So many different takeaways there. And you're, and you're right. It's such a, an inspirational analogy for what we do in life and in business. In particular, the courage part, Norman, because um, you know what I have found is that when, when we go into business, it's an expression of ourselves. We're creating something. And as you have yeah. expressed a couple of different times, when we put that out into the public, that's a very uh, exposed thing to do. Yes. And it gets represented in whether our business has success or not. People show up or not, or they ridicule us or not. And we take that personally as entrepreneurs. So we have to have the courage to put ourselves out there anyway. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, and that's, you know, and I would never say I'm a courageous person, but over the years I have become more courageous. But you are. Yeah. Yeah, you are. All right. What have we not talked about related to Crowley Carbon or Cool Planet Group that you want my listeners to know about what you're doing with those organizations? Um, look, what we're trying to do with those organizations is the way you solve climate change is you fix energy, transport, and food. Um, and those businesses all work in that area. Crowley energy, Carbon, transport, and food, you said? Food. And yeah. replace food with meat. Um, and that doesn't mean becoming a vegetarian. It means fixing the meat problem in one way or another. And so we, we do the three of those things. So Crowley Carbon, 
big player, 23 countries in energy efficiency, mainly for factories, uh, big software platform to go along with that um, in this Internet of Things space. Then Ava makes the sexiest cars on earth. Um, and with that, we work with some very famous designers, including um, Peter Brock, who designed the Corvette Stingray in 1957. Wow. Um, yeah, and that's a very cool company. Um, and then we're just starting something now in the food space that's going to disrupt meat. And we haven't announced that yet, but it's in this area called cellular agriculture or precision fermentation, which is basically where you can grow meat in a vessel rather than growing it in a four-legged animal. And um, and that's what Cool Planet Group does. And people can find out about us at coolplanetgroup.ie or I'm on Twitter at Norman Crowley one, the number one. And and I, I kind of post a lot of stuff on Twitter about what we're up to and, and the stuff that kind of behind the scenes look at, at what we do. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing. Inspirational. Is there a book that comes to mind that you would recommend? Um, depending on your flow, there's a couple. Um, Tony Hesh's um, Delivering Happiness. Tony tragically died last year, but yeah. Tony Hesh wrote Delivering Happiness, the story of Zappos, which you know is brilliant when it comes to the entrepreneurial journey. Uh, another one is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz um, on a similar vein. And then if you're into climate, most mind-blowing one I read uh, or listened to actually in the last year is called Blowout by Rachel Maddow. Um, she won a Grammy for it actually. And it's really just a mind-blowing story about, about the oil industry and the green technology. And it reads like a thriller, really? but it's actually a true story. Yeah, um, I have not read I, that. So thank you for that recommendation. I've read Delivering Happiness and The Hard Thing About Hard Things, but not Blowout. Yeah. I love business books that tell the truth as opposed to bullshitty ones that make it sound really easy because it's not easy. Yeah. yeah, I'm with you there. You had chatted about that in another interview that I listened to. You know, some of those early business books in the 80s were all about, you know, egos and and about how everything was great. So I agree with you. So much more that you can learn from the mistakes, which is part of the process. I'll have links to all of these books in the show notes page at thehowabusiness.com. Norman, we'll wrap it up here, sir. Uh, what's one thing you want us to take away from this conversation? So we've talked about a lot of things, but specifically on this idea of business ideas and keeping it in a perspective of someone who maybe is looking to start their first business. What's one yeah. thing you want us to take away about this idea of Look, coming up with an idea? Yeah, I don't think the idea is all that, to be honest. Think of anything because, you know, this word pivot that everyone uses now, you can pivot the business into whatever you want, right? Just just begin, right? Or people say, well, I don't have an idea. Just begin with the stupidest idea you can think of um, because the customer will fix your idea very quickly, right? Just put it in front of them, they'll fix it. Right? You may not enjoy the process of them fixing it, but they'll fix it. It's, it's much more about execution than the idea. Brilliant. That's been my experience as well. Thanks for sharing that and putting it so succinctly. Tell us again where you want us to go online to learn more. Yeah, so coolplanetgroup.ie, IE because we're an Irish company, um, and then uh, Norman Crowley1 uh, at Twitter is, is my handle. Wonderful. Norman, I could uh, have this conversation for hours if you would have indulged me, but uh, I want to respect your time. And thank you so much for being so transparent, for sharing, for the inspiration. Thanks for being with me today. 
Thanks, Henry. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for joining me on this episode of The How of Business. My guest today again was Norman Crowley. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or at our website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.